1: Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your hosts, Mayu and Just Mayu today. I guess this is one of the rare episodes where I have to do the preamble without Austin, but I mean, I guess that's part of the benefits of having a co-host, but let's also make this a good one. So I'll start with, I guess, what's been going on with me. Now that I don't have Austin here, it's a great opportunity to just talk about my own projects, right? So we're deep in renovations on our cottage property up in Minden that we purchased. This was Um, I think it was a five-bedroom cottage when we purchased it, about 3,000 square feet. Really good size. Doesn't look as big as it actually is, but really good size. I don't think we spoke a whole lot about the project, so I'll give you guys the details. I was actually going to be the capital partner on this one and take a backseat approach. I was looking forward to it, to be honest. I was going to partner up with another pretty established investor, but for various reasons, I ended up just buying the deal from him. I then partnered with a JV capital partner who was a long-term buddy of mine to take down a deal. And then I assumed the role of an active partner. So I guess the backstory on this one, the seller was pretty much MIA for chunks of time. And we couldn't get an appraiser into the house as his ex-wife apparently was living in the property. They wouldn't allow anyone to walk through it. and As a result, we had to close this one private. Private for a property like this out in cottage country, uh, it was at a pretty healthy loan to value. So it still came in at about 12% with a 2% lender fee. So pretty standard stuff. Holding cost per month is about 3K. It is a cosmetic burr. We're forecasting to be about 80K all in, just given the size of the house. And then there's obviously Airbnb furnishing costs, which will come on top of that. We did structure this one directly in a corp. So it's not my normal strategy, but this one's a cottage and it made a lot of sense for individual situations in my JV, my capital partner situation. So I'll let you guys know how it ends up going, but it is forecasted to be a full out burr at a least conservative, very conservative ARV of 600 plus Ideally, we're going to go in for high 700s or mid 700s, which will make it pretty much a full bird with the potential for high levels of cash out, right? If you guys want to see more about it, honestly, just follow me on Instagram if you guys aren't already. Super cool stuff. I find a shed on the way back in the property. I'm not even sure if it's on our property line. Bunch of building materials in there. Right beside our house is actually this kind of weird abandoned lot that had like super old like Corvettes and like there was actually like an airplane, not a crazy airplane, one of those two-seater like airplanes, but still super cool right beside it. I'm just thinking about the potential of making this into a paintballing area, but like I don't know who actually owns that lot, but it looks like everything's been abandoned, so super cool potential there. But once again, I'll let you guys know how it goes as I figure out who owns a lot of this stuff. Uh, we also just got started on a triplex renovation. This is one that if you guys follow me on IG now, you probably already saw it, but I almost ended up competing with the mortgage client on this one. We ended up just deciding to take it down together and not compete against each other, so major win there. This one's forecasted with some really good numbers as well. I'll share that another day just so I don't talk all about my projects. But total renovation spend on this will be about 120K. And what I'm realizing, it's crazy how much more expensive renovations are today than what they used to be, call it in 2020 or even 2021. It used to be 20K, you know, was my rule of thumb. Now it's definitely close to about 30, even higher maybe sometimes. But to be fair, it just might be that I'm taking on more and more crazy renovations as that really seems to be where the money appears to be in where the really good deals are. Right. That being said, I did see a really good deal come out from SLG guys and Pickering, and that was pretty much a turnkey property as well. But I think it also goes back to our discussion last week on risk and reward or uncertainty and reward as Austin would say it. Check that episode out if you guys aren't sure what I'm talking about. But anyways, enough about my projects. We were also at the Wild Hacker Conference this past weekend, which was super dope. Always fun to see people out and network and talk all things about real estate. Something I personally find super entertaining. I know not everyone does and not everyone can relate to it. I was once asked by some of my friends how I managed to work every weekend. And my response, not to be cliche, but it was that I'm not really working like heavy work, like sitting in front of a computer working on the weekend. There's just more so I'm attending events, talking to people about real estate. It just feels fun and natural, right? So on that topic, we are having a Rise networking event this Friday. We are technically sold out of the 150 tickets that the venue allows us to have. It will be in downtown Toronto. So if any of our listeners didn't have a chance to buy a ticket yet, shoot me a message on Instagram, and I'll see what I can do for you guys. Wink, wink. (laughs) So enough about me and Rise and what we're up to. Let's jump into today's episode. In this week's episode, we have Adam Kitchener. Adam, for anyone that doesn't know, was once known as the turnaround king. If you know, you know, and we'll just leave it at that. He was a go-to property manager that's become a real estate investor. Today, we talk about exactly that, what led him to buying his first property, challenges he has faced, how he manages bad tenants, common mistakes he sees newer investors making, how he screens tenants, and his criteria when buying a property. So as always, hope you guys enjoy the podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media, but also drop a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen to this episode on.
0: Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest, Adam Kitchener. Adam, how's everything going, man? Everything is doing
1: exceptional.
0: (laughs) Exceptional, not good. Exceptional. That's the first time we've heard that.
1: (laughs) Awesome, Adam. So myself and Austin, uh, you're a little bit of a veteran in the space and your name gets tossed around a lot. So we know quite a bit about you, but for any of our guests that might not know anything about you, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself, how you got started and what you're up to today?
2: Absolutely. I've been in real estate. I basically grew up in it. My parents exposed me to the real estate world when I was very, very young. And I realized very quickly that this is probably the safest avenue to build sustainable wealth, build a foundation for yourself, and build something that's also very, very secure and stable. Nothing in life is a hundred percent, but I believe that real estate is probably the most secure asset that you can own or the most secure business that you can own that will ensure your lifespan and generations following for wealth. And that's exactly what I did is I did not grow up in wealth, unfortunately. And so I had to build my own and I'm hoping that what I do today will be sustained for many, many years after I'm gone. Um, for example, yeah, when I was a kid, my dad bought a property on Sixth Avenue. Unfortunately, it was not New York. It was in Brantford. And so we would go there and we'd go and collect the rents back when they were, you know, $400, $500. We would go and we'd empty the coin launch machines. And, uh, we thought, I thought, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then he was able to leverage that first property into buying a second property on Park Avenue. And again, not in New York. <laughs> and, uh, if only we had property on Sixth Avenue, Park Avenue, New York. And I was in Brantford. And so very, very quickly, I learned what real estate can do. And by no means did this mean we were swimming in gold coins and driving Lamborghinis. But what it did do was created a bit of a financial base and a security for my parents for their retirement. And that is exactly what I believe real estate is meant to be for many, many people without pension plans and and unions and benefits and all that sort of stuff. That's exactly what real estate is about. If you hear anyone talking about their latest Lamborghini or whatever, you're talking to the wrong people. Real estate is about building a foundation of wealth for you and your family and the people that you love. And that should be your goal. goal in acquiring real estate.
0: Love that. Love that. So it looks like when you were growing up, you were already exposed to real estate investing. We want to get into what you're doing now, but just kind of lay out the landscape. What was it that led you to buy your first property? And can we kind of talk about the steps that uh, you took to get there? Absolutely.
2: Because I got the bug very, very early on, I knew that was something that I was going to do. When other kids were looking at colleges and getting degrees and going to university, I didn't have one, the arcs for it. And two, I didn't have the funds for it. So I knew that uh, if I was going to get ahead in life, which is the number one goal is to get ahead and get out of the rat race and stop chasing that nine to five and building a sustainable life for myself, I needed to buy real estate. Unlike any other business where you're constantly chasing a dollar, you know every salesman, even a real estate agent, once they make their sale, I got to go find someone else to buy another house. Uh, real estate is something where once it's done, once you put in the legwork, once it's done and the asset is bought, you can relax a little bit now and just maintain the asset. So I knew from a very, very young age, if I was ever going to accomplish anything in my life, it was going to be through real estate. And nothing could take that away from me. No one can take your real estate except the bank or a very, very overarching and overreaching government, but we're not there yet. So. I worked very, very hard. I worked three jobs as a kid working for tips, 100 hour work weeks, save up for my first down payment. Started from there basically to get my first real estate property.
0: So it seems like you have obviously like the hustle story, saving everything you can to get into your first property. How was that first property like? Because for a lot of people, at least for myself, um, the audience probably knows my story with the first property. There's a lot of like headache and hardship in it. Contractor screwed me over timelines like doubled or tripled? Can you shine some light into your first experience investing? Was it smooth sailing? Was it everything that you thought it would be? Or um, did it have some like pitfalls and hurdles that you had to
2: get through? Absolutely. First property that I bought was actually in uh, Woodstock. It was a very, very rundown property. Now, I mean, my advice to investors, first time especially, uh, don't buy anything that you can't fix yourself. And so if that's as simple as the only thing you could do is paint, then the cabinets must be very, very nice then because uh, don't buy anything that you can't do yourself. I'm a big believer that if you're going to go into this industry, you need to be smarter than every contractor that walks through the door or have a substantial amount of knowledge that they know that they're not going to screw you over. If you get the wrong contractor and they know that you don't know what you're talking about, they're going to run you ragged and they're going to triple your budget and run you as far as they can before you figure out the scam that they're pulling. When you start, the most important thing is get your hands dirty. I used to paint apartments. I hated it. I absolutely hated spending 8 hours of my day going up and down and up and down and cutting in and doing all the trim. I hated it. Later on in my career, I would appreciate a nice 8 hours where I didn't have to do anything but go up and down and paint. But really, that's my advice for first investors is you go in and you buy something that you can handle. Don't look at a building with a structurally unsound foundation and say, Oh, well, I'll figure it out. Everything, whether it's your relationship or your business, has to be a well thought out process of what's it going to take? And do I have the skills to make it happen? And if you don't, then don't. Buy an easy property. Your best property is not going to be your first deal. So you go in, you buy something that's easy, something that you can manage, and you go from there. You've serviced a lot of investors as well, as well as investing in
1: your own journey, right? So I'm curious to see, are you seeing that a lot of new investors or the investors that you service, are they individuals that have like a portfolio, or are they a lot of like mom and pop that are buying their first one or two properties, right? The next question from there is, I do feel like that landscape of all I need to do to this property is paint it is getting super competitive. And there's a lot of people that want that type of property, which is pushing a lot of investors into the more, call it messed up, messy, tough tenants, you know, problematic properties, right? Are you kind of seeing that in
2: in your side of the business as well, or... Because of who I am and what I can do and all of the things I've accomplished in my many, many years, I've had everybody from very, very inexperienced property owners who have bought in over their heads. And then I've also been privileged enough to manage 200 unit properties, very, very high end 3000 per month units, like very, very expensive high end units. I've managed one star properties and five star properties. The dynamics are completely different on both. I got my start running rough properties like you know when you're uh 22 trying to make a name for yourself no one's gonna say hey uh yeah here i got a beautiful asset you should manage they're gonna give you the stuff that nobody else wants and that's basically how i built my business and that's how i built my name was by going in and fixing problems that no one else could fix and the only reason i fixed those problems is because it was simply the only opportunity that was given to me i took what was given and that's the thing with most investors is uh beginning investors is you have to take what's given, but also, yeah, I I understand it's a competitive space, but you have to do what you know. A lot of my knowledge comes from being in the trenches and actually doing it myself and having no money to have someone else do it for me. A lot of people used to call me to help them fix their problems. As appreciative as I am for that, uh, now I'm at a point where I want to show them and teach them myself, this is how you do it, because you need to do it. I'm not always going to be around. I shouldn't be on the checklist of a mortgage. It's like, okay, I need your T1s. I need your tax form. Uh, I need proof of income. And I also need you to confirm that Adam's gonna help you with the property. Like I, I can't be that person. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm very, very um, hard on new investors and amateur investors in those mom and pop places. I remind them that uh, one, know your stuff, know the residential Tenancies act, know what tenants can do and know what your rights and obligations are good landlords strong landlords knowledgeable landlords are better for the industry i hate slumlords i hate shitty landlords it drives us all down we are in an industry that's uh obviously not the most popular and i'm all about educating landlords so that they're smart um if we do not govern ourselves accordingly we will be governed by the government and we know how good the government is at governing landlord-tenant boards. so we need to all be very very good and knowledgeable on what we can do and not putting ourselves in risky situations. The last thing I wanna see is someone who's just watched HGTV for three hours and they go and drop a half a million dollars on an investment property and they say, oh wait, this isn't as easy as they did it on TV. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, we're the one industry where people very uneducated can just go out and buy property and and people actively encourage this. If I were to tell you, I have no prior restaurant experience or managing a staff or don't even know how to work a point of sale system, but I wanna open a restaurant, people would be like, You shouldn't do that because Mm -hmm. I have no experience. But when someone says to you, I'm going to go and buy an investment property, people are like, oh yeah, real estate, safest thing in the world. No, Mm. no, 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 no. I'm actively discouraging people to go into real estate before they're ready. You know, there is a huge learning curve to being a landlord. And I actively Mm -hmm. tell people, find a coach, find a mentor, find a teacher. And also when you buy that first property, do it yourself, put in the cabinets, put in the tiles, even if it's poor. Even if you're really bad at it, you still need to do it. I was not great at doing tiles and you still do it. Why? Because it makes you knowledgeable. It makes you smarter.
1: Wouldn't that be the same logic? Uh, like when we say, you know, get a coach, get a mentor before you buy your first property and then say, you know, make sure you do a lot of the construction work yourself, et cetera. Isn't that like counteracting one another, right? Because part of what I say is, Hey, look, you don't need a coach for your first property. You don't need a mentor. You need to get down. You need to take action. You need to buy your first property, right? And you need to fail and fail fast and learn as as you go. Right. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Cause like part of it, I think a lot of people just suffer from inaction, right. And they're just going to sign up for a million different coaching programs and and take no action. Right. Like that doesn't seem very productive to me either.
2: Well, so that's the thing. So it's a mix of both. Um, Yes. If you're going to just go in and, and take coaching classes and just learn about the whole process without taking action, you're wasting your money. The one thing that I hate is when people tell me they spent $35,000 on a coach on how to save money for a down payment basis. And it's like, you had it right there. You should have just taken <laughs> $35,000. A lot of the information that you need to know is found online. It's listening to podcasts like this one. It's by going on YouTube. Spend hours and hours and hours learning the industry. And if that requires you to get a coach to teach you how to buy your first property, then so be it. There's a lot of free information out there. Go read a book. You know? But at the same time, regardless of that, you still need to go out and do it yourself. I was lucky enough that I grew up in an environment that I didn't need to get a coach. But what I don't advise is people, you need to make mistakes. But I also don't believe you should just go out and try to make mistakes. So go in educated because I had a landlord. He came to me and his very first tenant was a professional squatter who knew his rights, who knew the laws. And he knew the landlord didn't know the loss. Mm. and that guy would have essentially dragged out his tenancy without paying a dollar for two years, which would have cost this landlord probably 30, 40,000 dollars with all the damages on top of that. And so I said to that guy, "I mean, I guess to put it bluntly here, but you're an idiot. You spend half a million dollars on a house and you don't know the first thing about real estate investing. He didn't know what an N4 was. Like, how do you not know what an N4 yeah. is?" <laughs> You drop a half a million dollars on an investment and you don't know the first step and what to do if a tenant pays you rent late, Mm. that man needed a coach. Mm. And so it is a case of you need to do your homework. And then when you're done doing your homework, go do it. Right. Yeah. And so it is a mix of both, to be honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I kind of want to dive into your experience. I'm talking about tenants. Now, managing those uh, I guess, lower quality assets, you probably had your fair share of run in with um probably not the most glamorous tenants, um, to say the least. Yes. What what has that learning experience given you? Like, how do you deal with situations where the tenants are not like following the LTB rules or, or are disrespectful? Like, how do you navigate around that? Because I feel like even some experienced investors, like they just kind of handed off to property managers. And I was guilty of this at the beginning, too. You hand it off to a property manager done, like that's not on me. That's on the property manager to deal with. Because I wouldn't know how to deal with it myself. And I like the point that you brought up. It's like, you need to know how to handle these situations yourself in case the person you hire out doesn't know what the hell they're doing, or they're trying to scam you or screw you over. Like, What are some tips that you've learned from navigating situations of uh,
2: bad tenants? Well, I mean, I want to preface this by saying, one, 98% of tenants are absolutely fantastic. It is, I believe, overwhelmingly positive experiences you're going to have with tenants. All of my tenants, like literally every single tenant that I've ever put in my buildings, have always worked out. I've never evicted a single one of my tenants, but that's because I'm also very, very strict on my processes. But we don't need to worry about when things go right. We worry about when things go wrong. And that's why it's so important to know your stuff. So when I've dealt with the lowest of the low, the one thing that I try to keep in mind is This is a business, but it is also a business of people, and it's a business of people's homes. So you have to keep that in mind. Home stability and home security is the number one thing that is important to people, above all things, is having a place to sleep. It is also the number one reason why we have so many mental health issues in our society. If you you put someone in a stable home, they will grow up to be better people. I truly believe that. I'm a big advocate for the government building affordable housing because we don't have nearly enough of it. Um, And what I've seen is in my time managing some really, really rough buildings is a system that let them down. I've seen people who are down on their luck, who have found alternative resources such as drugs and uh, a society that gave up on them. And the key underlining reason for all of them to go that way is because of their housing stability or lack thereof. And now, me as a private enterprise, I have an obligation to provide a profit. And I'm by no means a psychologist. Uh, and I'm not able to subsidize people's living. That is the government's job. And, uh, and I will connect them with every resource to do so. I've rehoused a lot of people. I have provided housing for over 100 refugees who have come to this country looking for a better life. And I've not regretted it a single time. And I've also taken people, vulnerable people, out of a bad situation and put them in better housing. And that single-handedly has shaped their life for the positive. I've had people who I went in, kicked them out of the building they were living in because it was unsafe. And I put them in a different building. They reached out to me six months later, they sought me out and they says, I wanted to thank you for getting me out of that situation because I was in a bad place mentally and literally in a bad place where they were living. And now they are in a better place. They removed themselves from that negative environment and they improve their lives substantially. And so that's the dark part of this, is that you're going to encounter people who are not as lucky, as privileged as you are in your life. You're in a much better position. You own the property and they rent it. And this will probably very much be the only thing that they can afford. So you are, one, coming from a position of power and you need to acknowledge and think that about that in the back of your mind when you're dealing with these types of people. Remember that they're human at the end of the day and uh, you have a choice at the end of the day, you're still going to make a profit. You're still going to make a living. You're still going to own the asset longer than they're going to be there. But what can you do to help them move on and move forward with their lives and do something good? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think most landlords, I'd agree with you, but there's definitely, you know, quite a few instances in the news. You can go on Facebook groups and you can just read a whole bunch of these kind of stories and articles. Right. And I think a lot of people, I would argue like the average landlord that's buying like a single family or a duplex or some, like some small, right? Like we're not talking about like massive apartment buildings. For a lot of people, it is literally their life savings that they're putting into this property and they're taking a lot of risk and in getting into it. Right. So as much as I do agree with you, there is kind of that disconnect as well, where a lot of tenants think a lot of landlords are rich and a lot of people lose a lot of money as well as a landlord. Right. But I'm curious from your experience dealing with landlords, what are some common mistakes that people make
2: then in your opinion? So yes. So most landlords aren't rich. You own a property. If you own two properties, most likely those properties are not even making a $1,000 in your pocket. And that's if you don't have to call the plumber or the electrician. Mm-hmm. So by no means are most landlords rich. They're payoff. And I've said this time and time again. I watch these amateur investors. They start out, they take a course. Two months later, they have bought their first property. Then they buy a second property. Then they start doing their own courses. And it's like, whoa, 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 buddy, where are you getting off thinking that you can start courses and whatnot? But anyways... And a lot of these people think that it's a quick, rich scheme. It's not. Real estate is the hardest way. It is the most secure way, but it is the hardest way to make wealth because it requires a lot of legwork in the initial 10 years of your life before you get that big payoff at the end. So the idea that we keep glamorizing the industry is why try to keep bringing it down to say, no, 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 no. This is a very, very difficult industry. And it's because of the way the Residential Tenancies Act is. It's the way that tenants can be. And so, yes, it is most landlords aren't rich. Most landlords will own one or two properties and that's their investment. That's their retirement plan for the end of their life. So by no means, I know myself, it's a long journey and people need to remember that. It's like a very, very, you're know, you pushing a large rock and the rock doesn't move very much from year to year. And eventually, momentum does start to build and the rock moves on its own. And that's what real estate is. The first years you're like, why am I doing this? I'm putting so much effort and seeing very, very little result. Now, the reason that most landlords get themselves in a situation with a bad tenant is because of screening. You have to be very, very diligent, do your homework when it comes to selecting tenants. When I say I have fantastic tenants, it's because I do my homework and I now have built in a gut reaction when a tenant walks through my door and says they want to rent an apartment from me. I can tell from the first five minutes of our interaction whether they're going to get the unit or not. I haven't even done their credit check. I still do. I'm still going to do their credit check and do my due diligence. But I know from a gut reaction, and that's because most landlords, they think emotionally when it comes to renting an apartment. Remember, this is a business. You need to think critically. What is the reasonable expectation that this person is going to pay their rent? Are they going to damage the place? Are they going to bother the neighbors? Not your neighbors, but the other people in the building, if it's a duplex or a triplex or something like that. And that's actually, quite frankly, the three rules I have for my tenants. One, pay rent on time. Two, don't piss off your neighbors. And three... Don't damage the place. If you can do those three things, I don't care what else goes on in here. It's not my business. I have better things to do than tell people how to live their lives. So if you pay me my rent, I will forget that you even live there. If I don't ever hear about you and I don't see evidence of damage, you're good. I have tenants who have lived in my units for three, four, five years. And uh, I've even forgotten to raise their rent. Why? Because they don't call me. I don't need the extra $15 because they don't call me for silly stuff. I haven't called an electrician, which is $85 an hour. $150 Hundred and fifty dollars service call. So, the single best way that a landlord best take care of his asset is in the very initial lease up process. If you pick that tenant right, that tenant will live there, pay your asset, and, uh, and take care of it for many, many years. If you screw that up, and you're down a long, long road. Which is, you know, earlier when I talked about with the professional tenant, it all came back down to his screening process.
0: Yeah. So, I definitely want to get into the screening process a bit more, the due diligence side of things, but be. Before we dive into that a bit more, I want to backtrack. So one thing that you mentioned, and I definitely do agree with, is, is that if you're a landlord, you're probably already in a better situation than the tenant hence why they're renting, right? Depending on what city it's in. And you mentioned that there are cases where the property is in disrepair and you have to help these tenants find another place, not only because the property is in disrepair, but it will help them mentally as well and kind of free them there. One question I have is, is that with the rents being at all time highs and continuing to increase a lot of these times, these tenants who are living in these properties in disrepair, they're paying like five, 600, $700 for one or two bedroom unit and they have a budget in mind. So like finding another place for them, although cleaner and nicer, it won't fit the lifestyle financially. Like have you had those challenges as well? And, and how do you deal with those challenges?
2: Absolutely. That is going to be a challenge. And it's going to become more and more and more of a challenge as inflation rises and bank interest rates go up and property tax values go up as well. I've seen my own property taxes go and double and uh, we aren't building enough affordable housing as well. So there is nowhere for them to go. That is going to be the ongoing challenge for many, many landlords. And they're going to have to have some very, very tough conversations. The thing about it, though, is in many cases, tenants, come to a realization that $500 rents is not just simply going to do it anymore. A window is $500. A service call is $150. Just to have a guy come in and look at something, it's going to cost you $200. So they need to get with the reality of the world doesn't run on $500 rents anymore. It's, It's just a matter of fact. So they're going to have to increase the rent. Now, there's a lot of very complicated reasons as to why someone cannot afford that ODSP rates have not kept on pace and housing allowances are not even close to what they need to be. And that's, again, goes back to the government. There's a lack of affordable housing. We haven't built proper affordable housing like since the 60s. And I would ask, where's all the development money from all these developers building houses? Where's all the taxes and development fees going? Because we certainly aren't building houses with it. Uh, we have $2.8 billion in Toronto development fees sitting in a bank somewhere not building on a single affordable house. But that's the conversation I have to have with tenants, which is unfortunately your house is no longer sustainable. Now you can fight to live here for as long as possible, but the end result is at some point you're going to have to move out. So what is the best way to prepare you to find a new place to go so that we can do a new reset on your life? Because the end result is if the house truly is in disrepair, uh, they're going to have to move out. And what they're going to argue or fight for is their time in the unit lasts as long as they possibly can, which is obviously not a terrible strategy. But the inevitable is still the same. They still have to move out. They still need to face the fact that their $500 rent is going to come to an end. What is the best way to get them into a new unit? And my suggestion to landlords is obviously helping them with that new process, try to find them the most affordable rent that they can find, and then offer them some money to help them off with their new start moving costs, covering the difference in many cases to help them with their new place. And putting them in touch with some resources, whether it be housing or agencies or things like that, that can also help them get a substantial housing allowance as well. There's a lot of resources for that. And I yeah, housing allowances as well.
0: And that's a lot of good points. I mean, one person can't really solve someone's entire life, right? But you could do things to help as much as you can, whatever is in your control. So, like cash for keys, give them some money. Provide them with the right resources and connect them with people to find them other housing, but your job there is not fix their life, right? Like it's not, it's not really possible. So definitely agree with all the points you made above.
1: It sounds like Adam, what you're saying is also it works for tenants that are not paying rent in a unit that has fallen to disrepair, right? And I think as investors, if we're coming in and we're trying to buy properties with that have undermarket tenants, that's something to keep in mind, right? Is does the unit need repairs or is it just a situation where? The unit is fully turnkey and perfectly fine and livable. And some tenants can take care of their properties really well as well. Right. I do think the unfortunate reality, and I'm curious what your opinion on this is in the future, we're going to see more and more units with long-term tenants fall to disrepair because landlords cannot afford to take care of a unit that pays $700 to $600 a month in rent. Right. Like if you have a couple of plumber calls out there and a couple of leaks that start to happen, you, a landlord that doesn't have the capital means might just start going, Hey, like we're going to have to push all this stuff off. Right. Which then eventually at some point, these units will fall to disrepair, right? That kind of what you're seeing as well?
2: Right. So I have a building where I've had that conversation with the tenants. They've been there for 30 years. And as a result, so is everything else. Their furnace is 30 years. The windows are wood frames. The roof is starting to leak and there's galvanized piping and they're paying $615, something like that, $600 for rent. And I've owned the property for four years. I haven't done anything really with it. Because they're 30 years, they're 80 years old. I'm probably gonna outlive them. But things are starting to break, things are starting to happen. And I had a conversation with each of the tenants and I says, Look, this is the reality, this is the world we live in today. I'm gonna have to put about a hundred thousand dollars into this property straight up. I mean, with the roof, the windows, the new doors, new furnaces, furnaces older than I am. It's gonna break. And so I says, You have cheap rent for 30 years. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to have a conversation. We're gonna have to bump it up. We're going to have to bring it to a realistic rent. And even still, actually, what I've offered them is is considerably under market. I believe if I were to have a vacant unit, it would be probably closer to $1,300, $1,400. And I says to them, let's split the difference. You're going to go up and I'm going to come down $400. And just by having that conversation sitting in in their kitchen table and having that conversation, I was able to convince them to sign new leases that were well above what the landlord tenant board would have allowed which has allowed me then to go back to my bank and say, okay, I need $100,000 to go and fix this building to put in new roofs, new windows, new doors, and all that sort of stuff. So there's going to be cases where, um, and don't get me wrong, that's the thing, is these units on their own are very well kept. They're not damaging, they're not hoarding, they're very clean, but they're just simply old. You can clean a window that doesn't make it any younger. And so that's where I had that conversation I spoke to them civilly at their table. And I says, look, this is the reality. This is what we need to do. And uh, we both came to a conclusion where I'm happy. They're happy. I'm able to upgrade the building with some new stuff. And I says to them, look, this is something we're going to do once. And then we won't have to do it for 30 years. They're not going to be there in 30 years. And we extended the life of the building and everyone stayed where they are. But it's also not going to be at that $600 rent anymore. So worst case scenario, if you have a case like that, not a worst-case scenario, but in a scenario where the tenant is a fantastic tenant and they're living in an undermarket unit, and you have that you know, $600 tenant where it's no longer financially feasible to keep them, you just have that conversation and say, Look, I'd love to keep you as a tenant, but these are the realities that I'm facing. If they are keeping their unit clean, if they're taking care of the unit, that probably indicates that their behavior is also just as reasonable. And they'd be willing to come up a little bit and you'd have to come down a little bit. You're not gonna get market rent, but really, unfortunately, not always the case. You're never gonna have a 100% portfolio. And that's gonna be the reality. And that's probably the best outcome that you can work for is you have a really good tenant who's paying slightly under market rent. Um, and the way the rents are mark- working anyways, if they continue to rise the minute you rent it, it's already under market. That's, that's just a conversation you're gonna have to have with under market tenants to say, look, you're in a nice home, I'm gonna keep you here, but we're gonna have to find a middle ground here. get you a little bit closer market rent so I can do what I need to do to not turn this into a slum.
1: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, um, you've managed a bunch of properties in, in probably in some rough areas, and I know you said some good areas as well. But what is the tenant screening process like in especially those rougher neighborhoods and rougher areas? Like what do you go through from a tenant screening process?
2: The key to everyone's rental process, regardless of the property, should be what is the reasonable expectation that I can get rent from this tenant that this tenant's gonna pay their rent. Just because their credit is poor does not mean that they're not going to pay their rent. You're looking for behaviors. You're looking for a pattern in their credit. If you see someone of recent divorce, their credit might be not the greatest because they went through that experience. If they're on an OSAP loan, their credit might have been destroyed because OSAP is not the best for people's credits either. So I'm not looking necessarily at a 750 credit score. I know that just because you don't have the greatest credit score does not mean that you're not going to pay my rent. I'm looking for behavior patterns. So the two things that every landlord should think about is one, rent. Two, how much of a pain in the butt is this person going to be to live in my building? All I care about is making sure that my bills are paid and that the tenant isn't going to cause issues, either in the unit or to other people. Those are my two deciding factors. If you have a building in a rougher area, you need to... And that's the whole point of... The interview. It's that initial interview. It's kind of like a first date. I right? make this allusion I'll comparison a lot. But when you go and you show a tenant a unit, it's like a first date. They're always going to put on their best days. They're always going to show you the good side of them. And the crazy doesn't usually come up until three months later. And you're like, wow, this is a completely different person. The problem is when you date someone and you find out their true character, you can just break up with them and walk away. Once you've already signed that lease with the tenant, if the crazy comes out, it's too late. You've already made a commitment to stay with this person for a while. So you need to gauge and you have to be a very good judge of character as to who is this person? Just because they're looking at a rougher area apartment doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It just means that they're looking for something a little bit more affordable. And so can they meet those obligations of the rental obligations and the other obligations of are they just going to take care of this place and be respectful of their neighbors? And that's what you need to think about it doesn't matter if you're on the worst part of town or the best part of town. That's your measuring stick.
0: That being said, for your own investments, where are you holding them? Are you location dependent? Are you just looking at like, how are you underwriting these deals? Do you care if it's in a D neighborhood, A neighborhood, B neighborhood?
2: No, I've bought all over the place. If you were to look at my portfolio, you'd say, Adam, you're all over Ontario. Anything within about an hour between Hamilton and London and Kitchener, that triangle, is where the majority of my portfolio is. But I do have places in Niagara Falls. I have places just a little bit north of Stratford. I tend to buy in smaller communities. I don't know why I share this because then other people are gonna buy in smaller communities and make it tougher for me. But anyways, I do find that smaller communities command a much more reasonable tenant. When you go into higher end areas or more primary markets, the tenants are more demanding. So when I look for deals, I'm looking for the deal. I'm looking at the numbers strictly. I don't care where it is as long as it's reasonable. For me, I consider Sudbury, Windsor, those areas are too far out of my personal comfort zone. That doesn't mean that other people don't and they do very, very well in those markets. But me personally, I like to be able to drive to my properties. I'm a touch and feel. I'm a very conservative investor. I want to be able to see my building and I'm a very hands-on type person. So that's where I feel comfortable. So as long as I can drive to my property, I feel that investing in Ontario anywhere is a great place to go. And then, yes, just knowing the market, what are your area? What is your area? Is it an improving area? I don't generally buy in too rough of an area. But with that being said, if you offer a good product, you're going to find a tenant for it. And that's the thing is offer a good product.
0: So your unique skill set is obviously anything related to tenants, LTB. Like that's kind of your sweet spot. Yes. That I would say 90%, 95% investors. Won't be able to compete with you on that level of knowledge, right? That being said, when you're buying these properties, are you using that skill set and like buying these dilapidated, under market value properties that are fully tenanted? Is that the type of property you
2: seek or like what's your criteria? Actually, ironically enough, I haven't been to the landlord tenant board in probably four or five years. I am a big solutions guy. I try to come to the solution with the tenant. That's why conversations are so important. And I outline that to the tenants. If I am looking at having someone move out, once the behavior starts to kick in, either they're paying rent late or something like that, or they start causing issues, I sit down and I have a conversation with them and say, look, this is the road we're going down. This is not the path you want to take. If you're willing to have a conversation, we can deal with this as people. We don't have to go to the landlord-tenant board. It doesn't have to go legal. We don't have to get paralegals and lawyers and paperwork and cause all that expense, which is going to be a lot more of a positive solution for both of us. So yes, that's where that conversation comes in. That is a bit of an advantage for me is that I'm willing to have those conversations when I do purchase properties, if there is someone who's causing behavior issue, or if I have bigger plans for a property, I go in, I have that conversation, and we completely avoid the landlord tenant report because that's only going to cost us time. That's only going to cost us money. And I say to them, look, I could put my time and resources in the landlord tenant board or I can put my time and resources into you and all of the costs that affiliated with going to the landlord tenant board and just be given to you so that you can find a new place to go.
0: Interesting. It's a limiting belief on my end, like avoiding the LTB altogether, but it seems like over five years, you've dealt with hundreds, if not thousands of tenants. If it didn't lead to that, then um, I mean, that's something that I think as investors, we can all take away from and improve on is right, just having these conversations, being more transparent and uh, not being scared of talking to tenants, you know, like, The reality is, is that we're in this business and to succeed in this business, it's people business. You're going to have to have that conversation to be successful
2: in investing. A great example is COVID. COVID happened. And I remember the April... Yeah, the first month and the government was making announcements, you don't have to worry about being evicted. And all these landlords were coming out of the woodwork saying, am I going to get my rent? Am I going to get my rent? Oh my goodness, uh, my tenant's going to pay. And the first thing out of my mouth was, first off, don't you have a, a bit of a reserve in your pocket? Make sure that you have enough to cover your expenses. And tenants, and they were like, "Well, why don't my tenants?" It's like because you bought a property, you saved up for a down payment, you should have enough in your back. Where did you forget how to save? If if you managed to save for a house, where did those skills go? Right, a tenant does not own a house, so it's not expected that they should have as much savings as you. Now, with that being said, I did not have a single tenant not pay the rent. Why? Because the minute COVID hit, I talked to them, I spoke, and I says, "Look, we are going through." At the time. Very confusing times. I genuinely had no idea what was going to happen. And most other people did not. I mean, you went out in the street and there was no one there. I drove down Main Street. There wasn't a single car on the road. That is an eerie experience. And so I went to my tenants and I said, look, your obligation is still to pay rent. Even if you don't pay it today, you will be chased and you will get it paid later. But I went to them as a person. I went to them as a human. And I said, look, we're going through very, very weird and unusual times. And it was a little bit more put together than how I'm saying it now because it was a presentation. But the idea is, here are your resources. Here's how you get on unemployment. This is here how you get to serve. Here's how you get all these different things taken care of. And if you can't afford your rent, if you can't make your payment, let me know the minute you know. People don't find out on the first, oh, I guess I don't have my rent today. They know in advance. And I tell that to my tenants. I say, look, paying late is not a problem if you notify me. Because I have bills to pay. And if I know you're going to pay three days late or next week, I can work with that. You know, I'm not going to send you an eviction notice. If I know that you've notified me beforehand and you don't just drop the bomb on the first and say, oh, I don't have my rent today. And so that's where that comes from. And then when COVID hit, 95% of my tenants paid rent. The other five paid it within the week because they were waiting on their serve or they were waiting for their next paycheck or their last paycheck or something like that. And that whole approach worked wonders for my business. And at the time, all of the investors and landlords that were on under my management. It's a kind of
1: culmination of our conversation today, which is
2: ultimately between tenants
1: and landlords, there is a pretty big disconnect. I think a lot of landlords do have to kind of come down and think about things from a tenant's perspective rather than trying to sit on a high horse and stay as far away from the tenant as possible. You definitely have to get into the weeds with things. Generally, at this point in the podcast, we like to ask our guests two
2: questions. So the first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Right now, I'm still buying property. I'm still actively investing. Not necessarily currently. I'm still looking at deals with, with the rising interest rates. I'm kind of sitting back and waiting. But over the next five years, I'm probably going to I'm gonna continue to buy property. I don't know when I'm actually going to stop. There will be a stopping point. It will be a point where it starts to interfere with my lifestyle. I'm not going to work myself back into a job. But the idea of building real estate is not to work yourself to death. It's about building a foundation for yourself that you then have the free time To spend it with loved ones. I've seen a lot of very successful people let their lives fall into shambles in order to make another million or chase that next deal. That's not the point. The point is to build a foundation, get yourself set up, and then enjoy. Spend it with the people that you love. Travel, go and experience life, which is what it's meant to be. It's meant to be felt. It's supposed to be enjoyed. And so that's something else that I'm probably going to be doing a lot more of that I did not do in the last 10 years is actually enjoying my free time, which I didn't have for a very, very long time because I was working for other people and other people's expectations and obligations. So in the next five years, you're probably going to see me close on a couple of deals, but you're also going to see me going to be doing vacations and enjoying more of life.
1: Perfect. So Adam, in your opinion, for a newer investor in today's market, what do you see as being the primary risk?
2: primary risk is uh, going in uneducated or disillusioned with what you're going to accomplish. Real estate is slow. Real estate is time intense. And you need to be prepared to make sacrifices. You need to be prepared to work hard. This is not an easy industry. It really isn't. You'll go on YouTube, you'll watch Instagram, and you'll see everybody talking about their big deal. Uh, what they didn't tell you was all of the legwork that it took to get that deal done. Didn't talk about the stress and the pain that It took for them to get there and all the work that they did. I worked three jobs to get my first down payment. And I continued to work three jobs for a very, very, very long amount of time before I felt at a point where I was like, I don't need to work as hard as I do. And that actually took me a lot longer than it should have to really even make that acknowledgement. I have a lot of gray hair. So if you really care about your hair and you don't want gray hair, don't go into real estate. I am 30 and I have a lot of gray hair. So it is something that I think new investors really need to be made aware of is It's not glitz. It's not glamour. You're not a millionaire. And when you close your first deal, stay humble. When you close your second deal, stay humble. You know, Don't go out and lease a brand new uh, car or buy a fancy watch just because you you closed three deals in six months. It's not that big of a deal. A lot of people do it. So keep your nose down, work hard, live simply. Uh, We need two things in life, food, shelter, everything else outside of those two things are a luxury. So just because you did the legwork to get the first place, Don't lose all of that hard work and work ethic after you've closed three deals. Continue to work hard until you get to that point where you're like, okay, I've done it. That's not going to be found in the first three years. I can tell you that.
0: Adam, really appreciate all of the insightful kind of comments that you had there. And I definitely agree with a lot of your viewpoints. One of the biggest takeaways for me, kind of going back on that COVID conversation you were mentioning earlier, it was just a conversation, right? It was just a conversation that you had with the tenants that set the expectations and... I think that a lot of tenants are willing to have the conversations. It's more in the landlord's part to take that step as well to engage in that. So really valuable lessons there. If anyone wants to contact you, chat with you, follow your journey, how can they do so?
2: They can follow me on Instagram at uh, Mr. Adam Ray Kitchener. At the moment, i mean, short of having a Facebook profile.
0: Make sure to add uh, Adam on Facebook too, because you'll see his uh, funny comments back and forth when, yes. when he posted a listing on marketplace it's like it's like reddit but you see everyone's uh profile you <laughs> know like it's a bit of trolling back and forth so exactly. yeah all of those links will be down in the show notes below and if you guys enjoyed this episode make sure to give it a five star rating it helps bring great guests like adam out to the podcast and until next time everyone invest smarter and live better take care all